Happy 2021, everyone, and welcome back to the Computomics Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. I feel really great about what we did last year, and I'm really looking forward to contributing more this year. And I think today's interview with Detlef Weigel is a great way to do that. He is the Computomics co-founder and managing director at the MPI for developmental biology, and he has a very unique blend of biology and technology that has really been instrumental to the development of modern plant sciences. And I let him talk for a while at the beginning just because I think he has a great story to share, and I think it's important for us to learn from the careers of other scientists and the way that things have evolved in life and to see that things can come to their natural conclusion um, even when it doesn't seem like that at the beginning. In today's episode, he really shares some of the history behind his work and where he sees the field expanding. And I think it just puts a great perspective on the longevity of science and speaks to following your intuition and playing the long-term game. I hope you enjoy it and here's the episode. Hello, Detlef, and welcome to our podcast. Um, thanks so much for making time for us to chat and catch up. I think today's talk is going to be really useful to young scientists and maybe just, you know, those people who are curious about your history. And one of the things that fascinated me about you and has resonated with me is how comfortable you are with your multi-interest approach to science and research. Maybe um, you can just start talking to us about that. Uh, I think in general. So they are those scientists who early on become obsessed with one single thing, and that's what they study for the rest of their career. And uh, then there are other scientists, a group to, uh, in which I count myself, I like to think of them as scientific butterflies, you know, who fly around and uh, uh, visit different areas of uh, science, whatever strikes their fancy, and they, they come across. So I actually started out as a fly geneticist, I got my PhD here in Tübingen in 1988, working on fly embryo development. And um, at, at the time, this, this was an amazing time for, for fly genetics. And young me thought that, you know, uh, this couldn't really continue the way it was going because it was just too good. So I thought I had to do something else. And uh, uh, I was first considering mouse genetics, uh, but then I was uh, told uh, that mouse genetics would just be too hard and one couldn't knock out genes in mice, uh, which turned out to be untrue. Um, I considered nematodes, which I thought There was I an idea were, at some point that you couldn't knock out ma- mouse genes? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, so this was, you know, so, so, so we're talking the mid-80s. Uh, so in 1987, there was uh, were actually a couple of papers, a pair of papers published in Nature by uh, Kapeki and the other by Smithies on knocking out genes and cell culture in mice. And I saw that and I thought, ah, oh, this is really fantastic. I should become a mouse geneticist. And then um, I talked to a senior colleague who later became the president of the Max Planck Society. He said, you know, listen, it sounds like a good idea, but it ain't going to happen for 10 years or so. And so that's why I thought, okay, then I'll have to do something else. It took about a year or so instead of 10 years. Okay. Um, but so anyway, so I thought, okay, mouse, mouse is out. And then I considered nematodes and I thought these, you know, wiggly worms, they are 
uh, they, they just don't appeal to me. They are, you know, tiny, they are ugly. So, and that was sort of plans by um, default and looked around who was doing interesting things that were somewhat related to what I had done as a graduate student. And then there was uh, Elliot Myrowitz at Caltech, California Institute of Technology. And he had actually also started out in Drosophila uh, genetics and then had recently switched to plant genetics to Arabidopsis um, cyana. So I thought that's probably a kindred soul, uh, sort of uh, similar thinking uh, as, as, as I had. And he was studying homeotic genes that affected flower development in, in, in plants. And that was sort of similar to uh, in a certain way to what I had studied in, in fly. So I went over to Caltech Pasadena in 1989, also an interesting piece of history. I arrived there, um, I think it was um, six days, yeah, exactly six days on November 3rd, 89, six days before the wall fell on November 9th, oh, wow. uh, 89. So um, I missed all, all that part, even though I had grown up the first 18 years of my life uh, about five kilometers, uh, three miles from the inner German border. So for me, actually, as a kid, the presence of, you know, divided Germany was uh, something uh, very real. So anyway, so I left Germany, sort of missed all that part, went to um, Caltech. And when I arrived there, others had already started to uh, sort of figure out how these homeotic genes worked, which uh, made the different, uh, so others had already figured out how homeotic genes uh, work that make the different parts of the flower different from each uh, other. And I thought, okay, so what could I study? And I thought, oh, well, I, maybe I study how flowers are made in the first place. And so I isolated a gene that was important for making flowers. And then I went to set up my own lab in 93 at the Salk Institute, uh, sort of down the road from Caltech, if you will, further south, a little bit closer, closer to the Mexican border uh, on the Pacific Ocean. And um, um, we figured out very early on uh, in my lab that this uh, gene that I had isolated as a postdoc was a really powerful gene for making flowers. So we put it into poplar trees and poplar trees normally only flower after 10 years and we can make these plants flower within a few months. So this was really amazing demonstration that you could uh, use Arabidopsis, which is this uh, weed with a, a very <laughs> short life cycle, just a few <laughs> months at most, you know, a year or so, that you could use it as a platform for biotechnological discovery. So, so you know, we had this gene that, you know, controlled basically how flowers were made or where flowers were made. And that got me thinking um, about the control of flowering time. So this is really important for plants. If you um, flower uh, too early, then you know the pollen that you produce cannot fertilize uh, some other flowers. Or you flower too late in the year, then you know the fruits can't ripen. So uh, plants have to decide when to initiate um, 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 flowers. And that depends, of course, on the environment. That's different when you're close to the Arctic Circle than when you're in the Mediterranean. So it's what uh, evolutionary biologists call an adaptive trait. So I started thinking about flowering time control, and uh, that led to thinking about natural genetic variation in flowering time control in the species that we were studying, Arabidopsis um, cyana, which uh, I already mentioned is uh, 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 
not 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 very impressive uh, weed. It's not it's not an invasive weed or anything. It just grows grows everywhere. It doesn't really do any any harm, but it's nothing really impressive. So anyway, so we started thinking about genetic variation, and sort of the consequence of of that was that we realized, okay, if you study genetic um, um, variation, that will be a lot easier if you had not only the reference. Um, genome, but if you actually knew something about the genomes of um, these other strains that we were working with. So it was about 20 years ago, around the turn of the millennium, that the first uh, genomes were put together from uh, from, first from bacteria, then from yeast, then uh, Drosophila, uh, nematodes, elegans, and Arabidopsis thayana pretty much at the same time, and, and, and also humans. And interestingly, back then, everybody would talk about the human genome, the Arabidopsis mm-hmm. genome, the yeast genome, mm-hmm. right? Like there would be only one genome. And of course, today, we realize that um, that is not, is not right there. It's not just the genome. Every yeah. individual has their, their own genome. So anyway, so we started thinking about, we had this uh, one reference genome, but the work that we were doing, trying to figure out which were the genes that underlie this naturally occurring genetic variation that, you know, plants that we collected in Sweden would flower at different times from plants that were collected in Spain. And we really got to know more about um, genetic variation. And so um, we actually generated, uh, that, that was in uh, 2000, um, uh, 2007, so 13 years now, we generated the first haplotype map, hap map, mm-hmm. outside of uh, um, um, humans and used the same technology as in human. These uh, perlogen microarrays seems like a really crazy undertaking in, in, in retrospect. So this was literally for every position in the reference genome, there are 120 million positions in the reference genome, eight different oligonucleotides would be synthesized and they, uh, so it was both strands uh, and uh, the central position would vary over the, you know, four different nucleotides that you can have. So GACT and then the complement. So that's why it's, it was eight nucleotides for every position in the genome. So 120 million positions, so almost 1 billion different oligonucleotides synthesized and manufactured into uh, microarrays and then using DNA from these different strains to hybridize to these microarrays. And uh, the cost at the time was, um, I think it was something like uh, around $75,000 per strain. And we got something like 30% of the single nucleotide polymorphisms or or, or SNPs with this um, technology. So fast forward today, we get, you know, whatever, 90% of uh, single nucleotide polymorphism of SNPs for uh, well under $100. Um, so um, that's amazing, whatever, right? 15, 15, yeah, totally amazing. 15 years ago, it was, you know, uh, a thousand times, uh, literally a thousand times more um, uh, expensive. So, 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 so we got this first glimpse of um, uh, sequence variation. Then it was a natural when short read sequencing, Illumina. Uh, appeared on the scene. We were one of the first uh, to have actually an Illumina machine in Europe. I think we had serial number 60 or so. It was uh, maybe the second on the continent or something. And yeah, so this is really how one thing led to the other. And so we continued to study um, genetic variation from a phenotypic aspect. So to try to find genes that were responsible for uh, plants uh, flowering at different times or um, 
making leaves at different rates and so on and so forth. But uh, because we then had all these genome sequences, which initially my interest was just get genome sequences to enable the experimental work that we were doing. But since we had these genome sequences, it was sort of an obvious to look at them and you know try to learn more from the sequence um, uh, side, how, how plants evolve. So that uh, led to this other major research program in my lab that has to do with understanding evolution, not just from the phenotypic side, but also from the genome side. So for example, we were um, the, uh, the first ones which measured actual mutation rates, spontaneous mutation rates in uh, plants or actually in, 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 in any multicellular um, organism. We uh, looked at which families of genes are particularly variable, um, uh, how variable are transposons and so on and um, so forth. And then especially looking at um, which genes were particularly uh, variable that converged very nicely with experimental work that we were doing. And that's, again, this the theme that I mentioned in the beginning that um, much of what I've been doing is a sort of chance discovery and then following my nose or mm. the nose of my students and, 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 and postdocs. We had made uh, crosses between different strains of Aridopsis thiana and uh, found that in not insignificant portion, about one in 50 of these random crosses between wild strains cause plants to activate their immune system and uh, often they would die from it. So these were sort of paranoid plants that is, we made crosses <laughs> and then these plants, they behaved as if they were attacked by pathogens, even though there weren't any pathogens around. So that became a, a, a big thing in my lab to try to figure out what was um, behind this, the spontaneous activation of immunity in, in hybrids. And uh, what we figured out over um, the years is the immune genes, they are the most diverse genes in the genome. They are, um, uh, with short read sequencing, very, very difficult to understand what their variation looks like. Even if you have reference genome, you can see how variable they are. But to make sense out of that variation um, was um, really difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. And that's where, for example, graph genomes come come in. And I, I don't remember whether you have already covered that in one of your previous uh, podcasts, but you know, thinking of multiple genomes in a graph framework helps you understand that um, um, variation. But there was this nice convergence that we had found with our you know, top-down approach, starting with uh, the genome sequences. We had seen a specific class or some of the specific classes of uh, immune genes, these immune immune receptors, which help the plants to detect the presence of pathogens. They are the most variable genes in the genome. And then those are the genes that we also arrived at when we tried to figure out why we had these paranoid plants. And there was basically mismatched immune receptors or mismatched immune genes. And so the um, in, in retrospect, it seems sort of obvious what's, what's, what's going on there, that uh, these plants are, are paranoid for a simple um, reason. So when you think about a population of, of, of plants, um, plants have an immune system, just like you know, animals um, have. Yeah. Um, but within a population, this plant will be resistant to a certain spectrum of pathogens. That plant will be resistant to an overlapping, but a different uh, spectrum of pathogen. And then this third plant over here, again, will be resistant to um, another uh, spectrum of, of, of pathogens. So 
you often find that individual plans um, uh, can can be resistant to you know a, a specific um, um, pathogen, but um, you don't uh, you find uh, really that all plants in a population are uh, resistant to the same um, pathogen. And then creates this paradox. So if these individual plants can be, you know, resistant to this pathogen and that pathogen and that pathogen and so on and so forth, why aren't there plants that are just resistant to everything? Every pathogen, right. 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 So, and, 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 and the answer is apparently there are limits how many immune genes you can collect in your genome. If you collect too many gene, immune genes in your genome, uh, uh, figuratively um, speaking, then these immune genes, they don't all play nice with each other. And you, you have essentially conflict in the immune genes. You get immune genes or immune proteins uh, encoded by uh, your your genome that then start to behave in inappropriate manner that they form complexes that are all of a sudden uh, active and signaling even though they should not be because normally they should only be activated pathogen but because you have you know different complexes they um, uh, they just uh, signal or uh, you have uh, receptors that recognize other plant proteins uh, as if these other plant proteins were somehow modified by uh, pathogen molecules and, and and so on and so forth. So it was really, you know, was, was really beautiful to see this convergence on the one hand, um, uh, experimentally working uh, with with plants and studying specific phenomena on autoimmunity. And then on the other hand, you know, from, from the genome sequences, seeing, yeah, these plants are, these genes are so uh, amazingly variable. And it's, 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 what is also interesting about this diversity, when, when you see a family of genes and you see they are very, very diverse, the first thing that comes to mind is that you think, ah, oh, yeah, these, these genes must you know, evolve very, very quickly. And that's why they are so different in all these different individuals. But that's actually not necessarily the case. So an alternative explanation is that there are certain uh, genes and especially many immune genes where you just, you, you do not necessarily evolve diversity faster than other genes. You just maintain that diversity longer. So for other genes, you know, normally you have diversity, then you have a bottleneck and most of the diversity is, uh, is purged and you start again with very narrow diversity, you diversify for a while and then you pare it down again. And with these immune genes, this is not apparently not what you do. You start with a lot of diversity and then you maintain that diversity and you can maintain it for a really long time. Long time meaning millions and millions of years and longer than, uh, much longer than, than, than a species has uh, existed. And again, genomics has uh, helped us to, to figure this out and show this directly in a number of uh, species that that's what's going on, that there you can lose um, genetic diversity almost everywhere in the genome, but you cannot lose it as these uh, at these immune genes. So, so this gives you uh, it, it's a little bit of history what uh, we've been doing in the last uh, my lab uh, last almost thirty years. Yeah, that's amazing. It just it brings up so many points that I feel like uh, can resonate with people. So, for example, 
Um, you know, just the concept of falling in love with plant genetics and the fact that plant genetics is really so amazing in and of itself and something that maybe people don't, or as a general community, we don't give respect to the same way that we do to human genetics or even to other aspects. Like when you say immunity, people I think would respond in a very positive way. But when you say that actually all this information about immunity came from plants, I think that's not a well-known or well-understood aspect. And that's something that I realized as well. I did my postdoc um, at Hohenheim working on innate immunity, so TLR receptors, and I was uh, flabbergasted because I had done my PhD in human genetics and I had literally never thought about, um, <laughs> you know, the way that plants shape the way we understand then human genetics. And I think it's, it's really amazing. Um, and it sounds like you've sort of fallen into that group of people who understand the importance of plants in all things that we know about ourselves. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, uh, you know, since you mentioned uh, plant genetics, of course, a practical application of plant genetics is uh, plant breeding. And so... Um, there we can talk about something that is really dear to my heart and uh, that is genome editing. So I uh, spent uh, quite a bit of my time in, uh, on public advocacy for genome editing. So as you know, genome editing is this uh, amazing tool where you can make a targeted mutation in the genome and these mutations that you make, they look no different from mutations that can occur spontaneously or mutations that can be induced by treating a plant with uh, mutagens such as chemicals or, or x-rays or UV or, or what, what, what have you. And uh, there is uh, this uh, very different appreciation of uh, the power and the advantages of genome editing in different parts uh, of the world. And here in Europe, unfortunately, quite a few people are really skeptical of uh, genome uh, genome editing, um, and 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 it's it's something that I try very hard to uh, go to the public, talk about uh, my work, and uh, convey how variable genomes um, are. So what what I realize many of the uh, original legislation that we have regarding uh, gene technology and and genome editing and so on. It comes from uh, about 20 years ago, and 20 years ago, this is something that we you know, touched on, um, on earlier. So 20 years ago, we thought that within a species, genomes are, are very, very similar. And we really had no idea how uh, different genomes, even within the same species, um, can be. So in uh, plants, it's uh, not unusual you compare two different varieties, say, of maize, and they are literally thousands of genes, thousands of genes that the one variety has, but the other one does not, and vice versa. And so for reference, the total number of genes that you have in a corn plant is on the order of uh, 40,000. So that's a pretty common number. Uh, most multicellular organisms, be it a human or be it aridopsids or be it corn, or, um, have on the order of somewhere between 20 and, and 40,000 genes or so. So literally thousands of genes present in one and uh, not the other and uh, um, vice versa. And so 
compared to that, when you do genome editing, even if you modify more than a single gene, it's really you know uh, uh, a, a drop in a very very large uh, um, um, bucket. So the the, um, the 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 alteration that you make, and that also comes back to what I mentioned earlier, my interest in spontaneous uh, mutation rates. So this is also something that you know really completely boggled my mind when 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 we first measured this experimentally. So we had found again in Arbidopsis, we had found that every generation you have about one spontaneous mutation per um, genome. So the uh, wheat genome is considerably larger than the Arbidopsis uh, genome. It's about 200 times larger. So uh, we can estimate that instead of one mutation per uh, genome and generation is probably more like 200 mutations per uh, genome and generation. But what this anyway means is you go to a wheat field and literally every plant growing there is different from every other plant because each of them has like 200 random mutations in uh, in the genome. So, and that also means when you collect seeds from these plants and sow them uh, the next year, the same field, um, again, these are, these are different plants. But so somehow we have this in our head that things are constant and, 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 and you know, it's sort of innate in, in, in humans that, you know, uh, lots of us prefer stasis really over change, you know, so change often is, is, is felt to be uncomfortable. And so we like to think that, you know, it's better that things don't, don't change, but that's not how the world uh, uh, works. So um, mutation happens all the time and evolution is something that happens uh, every minute, every day, every year. I feel like it's not necessarily change that we're afraid of. I think it's the multidimensionality of things. I think if you present change in a single dimension, then I think that's very easy to grasp and very easy to understand once you expand the dimensions, because nothing is of singular dimension, right? Nothing is flat. Every concept is multi-angled. And when then you present that in a multi-angle fashion and then change happens across multiple dimensions. I think that's what our brain um, str struggles to visualize and to sort of bring that back to one of the concepts you described. That's also why um, the visualization of these uh, comparative genomes can be so tricky, right? Because you have to visualize it on many dimensions to really understand what's happening. So it's not just, um, you know, straight lines that you're comparing. It's not just genes you're comparing or just inversions, but it's really a very complex system that you have to make in such a way that the human mind is able to grasp, to extract information out of it, but also to visualize it in a way that is comfortable for the human mind to visualize, which I think makes these um, uh, genome graphs kind of a tricky business. Would you agree? Yes, so so so, so uh, I, t I totally agree. So when uh, it's, so, I just you know talked about uh, um, random mutations, and so uh, what one could perhaps take away from this is yeah. So you know these 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 genomes they are all sort of you know equally distant because uh, mutations are, are random. But then where then selection comes in, and uh, actually. They are parts of the genome where um, different individuals look very similar, and there are other parts of the genome where they look extremely uh, different. And uh, that's really the um, challenge 
comparing uh, genomes and uh, um, thinking about genomes. So to uh, first break it down in uh, parts of uh, the genome or, or genomes where we can say, okay, not much going on. We don't have to really think about them. And then the other parts of the genome where a lot is uh, um, going on. And uh, again, coming back to some of the things that I mentioned uh, um, earlier, sometimes these changes are so dramatic, even within a species, if you wouldn't know these are members of the same species, you just looked at these um, sequences, you might think they are actually from completely different um, species. And, you know, as, as, as biologists, we, you know, with, with DNA sequences, we like to um, align them. But when sequences are so very different from each other, that becomes a really tricky business. And it's, it's sort of something that we take for granted, genome alignments, um, for example. So um, until relatively recently, I thought that this is a problem that was solved, you know, whatever, <laughs> uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago or so, that, you know, how you align genomes um, to each other. And, then, you know, my students started to work on these complete genomes and uh, uh, progress was extremely um, slow, and I was like, "What is going on on there? You know, why why can't you get this to work?" And then we collectively realized that something where we had all thought it was a solved problem was 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 not. And so, in, another example is also um, genome annotation, where again, uh, I thought that is a um, solved problem. But it's uh, actually not. And again, that has to do with genomes being so very different. So if you just had very small changes, it would be really interesting. It would be really simple to um, compare uh, genome annotations between different genomes. But unfortunately, you have often these really large changes where, you know, you have extra copies, where you have inversions, deletions, duplications, and, uh, and whatnot. And that make it a really, really um, uh, tricky business. And it, it's good that you mentioned the visualization because I think that's actually really, really important to look at uh, the data and to look at the um, genome. So when you just keep it very abstract, your genome comparisons, I think you can uh, easily uh, go down some uh, some rabbit, uh, rabbit hole. So uh, important lesson is is always look at your data and see whether that what, what what you see there makes any sense. So maybe as a final question to wrap this up, and as a since you do work with with us at Computomics and you are one of our scientific advisors, maybe you can sort of give from your perspective the the goal of some of the solutions that we provide, like our development of Pantograph and Anascore, to visualize and to address some of those challenges. Yeah, so, so I think for, 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 for the breeders, that's really, you know, what, uh, what they want that, to, what, that's what, what they want to have. So they have this breeding material, they have these plants that they observe in the field um, every year, and they, they, they see them or they have, you know, measured something that is tangible, that is uh, palpable, and they want to connect that to actually seeing in the genome what do these um, differences um, look like? So it's, uh, I think, one thing to just have, you know, whatever um, p-values or really abstract uh, representations. And it's another thing to actually see 
what the um, differences are. So for example, to see different haplotypes, to see, okay, this group of plants behave in that way, and that matches really nicely. They have these very different haplotypes. And it's great actually that, you know, we're talking today because um, just last night, two really beautiful papers um, were were published on wheat and uh, barley pun genomes. And um, they highlighted really, really nicely how powerful it is to graphically compare um, uh, genomes. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank you so much for all the information, and I really look forward to the opportunity to see what you and your students do. I know that you're really committed to the, the scientific field as a field, and you know you do a lot with helping your students move ahead. And actually, one of our next episodes is going to be with Claude Becker, so he came from one from your lab as well. So, just from a personal perspective and having worked with different supervisors, I want to say thank you for being so committed to. Um, sort of the next generation of scientists. I think that's that's beautiful. Thank you for being committed to um, startups and innovation as you do with Computomics. And I wish you all the best, of course. Uh, thank you, Anna. So thank you everyone for listening to our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I think that was a great session on Detlef's career and his thoughts on the field and sort of his point of view and just reassurance for everybody that your career and your life will go in the direction it's meant to go, even if it seems like there's no more genes to discover or, you know, genetics has run out of ideas. There's always something to uncover. And we really appreciate Detlef's contribution to Computomics, and we really appreciate our listeners. If you have any suggestions for the podcast or if you would like to reach out to us, please email us, info at computomics.com. And we hope to see you here for our next episode. Thanks.